So um, we have been um, constructing the, the things that we say in ordinary life. We've been using a guide path. Um, first of all, we did, as you know, the four noble truths, the evil path, and now we're going through the Sermon on the Mount and have decided to take this deep dive into the Lord's Prayer. And uh, Neil Douglas Klotz, whose work I refer to every Sunday when we do this, translates the phrase that we are up to now as untie the tangled threads of destiny that bind me as I release others from the entanglement of past mistakes. Yeah. Because this is, uh, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. I hope, Holly, that we get a chance at some point to get to the uh, what the original phrasing was because it's about money mm -hmm. and <laughs> i just i'll just say this and then purge it out of the way uh as somebody who does psychological work i can tell you that for the past 50 years people would rather tell me the most intimate details of their sex life than talk to me about how much money they have or make and what they so spend it on it's so interesting. Like we, yeah. it, we do have a weird kind of shame and also um, coveting and also um, ultimate goal of money, right? Money right. brings up a lot of shame and embarrassment. And, you know, I've heard it said like, unless you have none, in which case you have nothing to hide, right? But even then what we see sometimes, um, this, there was some sociologist and economist who, who did some studying of behaviors of the very, very wealthy and the very, very poor and how, and I can't remember his name, I'll try to find it and put it in the notes, but um, how the behaviors of the very, very wealthy and the very, very poor were sometimes the same in that they used their money to buy cultural status symbols. But the, the difference between the very, very poor is that they can afford to keep buying those cultural status symbols, the nice shoes, the nice cars, the nice bags, et cetera. Whereas the very, very poor say, I want to fit into this culture, so I better buy the status symbols that help me to fit into this culture and might prioritize those status symbols over, let's say, paying rent or something like that, you know, and yeah. it's, it's interesting work. And I think there's probably some nuances missing from it, but it is. Um, we have created a status symbol that is just nuts. And that status symbol drives our behavior in so many ways. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, just to be clear, and, and we will talk about this on yeah. Sunday, but this teaching is, though it is about money, is it about much more. It's about justice. Yes. And it's about how, um, as you have talked about, in class before, the economic setup of that time was one that put a majority of people into very perilous position. Yeah. That being said, what keeps intruding into my consciousness as I've been trying to write both this week and last week are events that are going on in our culture right now mm -hmm. that are the result of massive injustice. And I know you have not seen this and yeah. I'm going to, I don't know whether to encourage you to watch it or not. It's just heartbreaking. And that's the video mm -hmm. that has just come to the public's attention 
about Second Lieutenant Caron Nazario, yeah. who was stopped by these two cops in West Virginia Beach and treated horribly, yeah. horribly. Yeah. Um, it is just clear racism from first to last. And then last week, the, the murder of Dante Wright yeah. and that taking place within a matter of 10 miles of where Derek Chauvin's trial is going on as we speak. It just, it's just like, was, how much can a community take, you know? Mm. Um, and I don't mean the monolith of the black community. I'm speaking specifically about Minneapolis, you know, that there's, that's, those are two major bookends to a terrible year, you know? Yep. And um, yeah, I haven't watched either video. I have, seen stills, in other words, photographs and read about each one. Um, and I'm still kind of like not ready to press play, but I, I think there's maybe a moral obligation I feel to watch it too, to just sort of know and sit with and acknowledge the abuse of power um, that went on in both of them. There was a second, second um, there was a, a, I think a Washington Post headline that read, and I read it to you when I spoke to you the other day after the murder of Dante Wright that said, officer meant to use taser, but accidentally fired gun in fatal shooting. Impossible. Yeah. That's like, that's a headline that's trying to also be a criminal defense for something that's totally indefensible. <laughs> Impossible. You know? Yeah. It's just, um, it's just so sad how much we diverge from telling the truth about what is and do all this work to try and get the, the attention off of what really happened and to all these excuses for why it happened. Okay, let's just back up, uh, take a yeah. bird's eye view a minute. Over the last number of years, police officers have mistaken what black men had in their hands, a wallet, a cell phone, mm -hmm something for a gun and shot them. Mm -hmm. But when the shoe's on the other foot, oh, I mistook my taser for a gun. That's okay. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> sit with that. Just yeah. sit with that. It's so heartbreaking. And, you know, one of the things that concerns me is that I, and I, I'll say this Sunday in the introduction, I've already tried to write that, is that we we need to seriously deconstruct the the tradition that we have been handed. And it's not I'm not interested in throwing out the baby with the bathwater, but we we have to hand on something different, mm -hmm. something that brings enlarged life and living into the world. And what that is from every living tradition is love. Yes. And I feel sometimes so impotent and ineffectual mm. uh, because what seems to be happening is that there is not less violence. Right. Maybe we just know more about it. But during COVID, it seemed that some of this stuff sort of receded into the background. Mm -hmm. And now it's out for everybody to see again. Totally. I, you know, I've, I often quote Bell Hooks, who's one of my 
favorite authors, social critics, and thinkers. And one of the reasons I like her so much is because she's bold and unapologetic about bringing the topic of love into the political and social sphere. And if we can reimagine love, a culture driven by love ethics, then we might actually begin to be able to reimagine our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, essentially the love ethic is our, our agreed upon set of values. And if everything that we constructed from laws to businesses, to schools, to um, public programs were centered around a love ethic, then we'd be having a very different starting place. I, I, I just, in my mind, jumped to how Robin Wall Kemmerer and Braiding Sweetgrass, I know we've mentioned that book a million times, but how she said, what if we use the Haudenosaunee prayer of Thanksgiving as our pledge of allegiance instead of our pledge of allegiance? <laughs> because what the Haudenosaunee do is before every difficult instance, whether it's um, an uh, active diplomacy and inter- tribal conflict, um, conflict between groups is they, they start with Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving address. And what a different stance that is to take in conflict than I am, than, than I and it, or I and other, you know, and so often in conflict where we get stuck is that we other the person we're in conflict with. So, um, you know, I came up with this definition of spiritual practice decades ago about spiritual practice, the heart, the heart of it, the content of it, the methodology of it is um, a willingness to face into what is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what is, is that we live in a society that is structured to disadvantage those who are already disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Yep. And I know that the, that people take offense at that and they resist hearing that, but it is the truth that mm-hmm. you know if you're if you're a black male in this culture, you are more likely to be accosted, criticized, demeaned, and even shot than if you're a white person. Yep. That's just a fact. Yep. You know, some of a lot of what we've been untangling um, the last year and, and beyond in, in your own teaching has really influenced how I'm approaching. I told you I've been writing my comprehensive exams for my dissertation. So those are the last two papers that lead up to the writing, as you know. But um, But this comprehensive exam is kind of about how do we free ourselves, again, I'll quote Bell Hooks from what she calls white supremacist patriarchal thinking. She's real careful to say, we're not all white supremacists because even non-white people have adapted to white supremacy thinking. In other words, that there's a superiority in, um, in one body and not in another. And so she's in her sort of talking about love. She thinks that love deals with First, telling the truth, right? And, and, and when I tell the truth, I'm actually showing respect, right? And when mm-hmm. I show respect, then I'm actually engaged in some sort of um, dialogue. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually in the issue and not trying to remove myself from the issue. But um, I, I, I'm, so I'm trying to frame this comprehensive exam around this. And I'm, I'm thinking about the economic burden of white supremacy thinking 
the psychological burden. And to Mm -hmm. me, I think that the psychological burden is that what white supremacist thinking has done is put so many of us in denial. It can't be that bad. You're not right about this. You know. that, is, that is exactly the point I want to make. Mm-hmm. And that is, as long as we deny what is, mm-hmm. we become possessed by what is not. Right. And it is a kind of possession. Yeah. I mean, cultures can be possessed just as individuals can be possessed. I mean, we've all been possessed. Yes. We've all done things and later had to say, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't know what got into me. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and so cultures can get uh, possessed too. And I'm beginning to think, as I have, I don't know a lot about QAnon. I don't know a lot about, uh, about conspiracy theories. Uh, I have some understanding of why people believe them. But um, I, I think there is a difference between people believing in lies and people no longer believing the truth. Mm, mm. I think those are different things. You know, um, I can say to somebody who thinks that um, the CIA plotted 9-11. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a conspiracy theory that some people believe. Right. Yeah. And I, they so they, they believe a lie, but they don't believe the truth about mm-hmm. what what is. Mm-hmm. And it's the truth that's going to set people free. I think some famous man named Jesus said that. But <laughs> Jesus, last name Christ. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly it is that we get, we, we actually, it's not just a sort of willing ourselves to be in denial um, to protect us in this moment. It's, it's a commitment to a commitment to denial that lets us believe that we're not complicit or part of some of mm-hmm. the harm being perpetuated. And that's when we're in the grips of white supremacist patriarchal thinking. You know, we don't have to wear robes and burn crosses to be in the grips of the thinking. And, and, and that what I'm beginning to wonder is that, is there enough interest in creating disturbance around that thinking to actually shift society. There are so many who are protected and comforted and made comfortable by the privileges of being part of the dominant group, that there's not a lot pushing them to do otherwise. And I should say pushing us, I, I, you know, I, I don't wanna remove myself from that, but. What I have hoped for over the years is a dawning realization on the part of an increasing number of people mm-hmm. that in every society historically where the majority of people have been poor and insecure mm-hmm. and the people in power treat them as expendable, mm-hmm. those societies collapse. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I have been fearful since the rise of the political right, uh, the Trumpism and um, all of that, I have, I have feared that um, 
liberal democracy may not have a future. It could collapse. We could collapse. And I'm not trying to be histrionic in saying that. I, I went to dinner with, uh, we went to dinner with dear friends of ours the other night, and and they're not politically involved. I mean, they're great people, and I love them dearly, but um, they try to stay, you know, out, out of the political conversations because they have people in their families who are Trump supporters and people who are not, and they try to get along and all that sort of thing. But one of the people at dinner just kind of interrupted what we were talking about, which is probably the weather, and said, I fear for our country. Hmm. I fear for our country if Derek Chauvin is found innocent. Hmm. I fear for what will happen. Well, I'm sure that there is a lot of fear of a great uprising. And I was reading about um, this idea of interest convergence. It's sort of a critical race theory idea. And when there's interest convert, like things, major things in this country have happened because of interest convergence. So even the civil war that was, was a result of the union, the North fearing an uprising of those who were enslaved in the South and that the union would not be able to suppress that. So they said, well, why don't we just sort of indicate that the enslaved people should escape and join us that way. So that interest convergence, I don't know if I'm actually interested in your freedom, but I'm interested in me. <laughs> I'm interested in my own interests here. So why don't you join us and we'll just, but it would take another hundred years for the civil rights movement to have even into law. And we're still battling with that, you know, um, but even the civil rights movement was also an interest convergence. There were um, soldiers, um, black soldiers returning from the Korean and the World War II who had fought valiantly for our country only to come home to a segregated country that where they were not protected under the guise of democracy. So again, the powers began to fear an uprising, people who had fought for freedom and didn't have it at home. So I, I, I wonder like, what is the interest? And this is a little bit, I wanna say it's a little bit like uh, pessimistic thinking. What is the interest of the powers that be that need to converge so that we actually have real justice in this country, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I fear that that interest is gonna be made economic. What is your economic interest here, you know? But yeah, mm. of course people are afraid. There is a lot of um, justifiable anger, exhaustion, fear, not belonging, felt in the bodies, if we're specifically talking about black men, felt in the bodies of black men. Okay, so um, I want to tell you about two conversations I've had this week. Mm. One yesterday with a really, really, really smart young man who's maybe one of the smartest younger people I have met outside of you, of course. Uh, (laughs) Am I so younger? (laughs) And he asked me if I believed that there were tipping points. That that, that it was really a challenging question because I was talking about how I did believe that things were getting better and that there's hope and possibility, and we had to live with that. 
we had to live as if that were the case. Uh, John Tucker says in his book, Zero Theology, you live as if. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and so he said, do you really believe that there are tipping points? And I said, yes, I do. I think there are tipping points, like, um, for example, in uh, the marriage of uh, LBG, same-sex couples. Mm -hmm. There was a tipping point. There was a place, time when that was no longer okay. Now it is. And I notice on the TV commercials that I see, not only do I see more gay couples, I see more interracial couples mm -hmm. on uh, commercials on TV. So that's a tipping point that I could refer to. So that's one conversation. Mm -hmm. The other conversation I had was with a man who said, if you thought, and this is, again, a very bright, bright man, uh, expert in some psychological areas that I'm, I'm not trained in. Mm. He said, have you thought about what's going on about all the controversy about transgender issues? And I said, I'm not sure I know what you mean. And he said, well, here's what I mean. The right has lost its battle against gays and lesbians. They know it's lost. So they're moving on to the next arena, the transgender arena. And he says, I happen to be quite knowledgeable about transgender young people. Mm -hmm. I have colleagues who work with them and study them and know a lot about them. And I said, well, this is not my area of expertise. And he mm -hmm. said, what is happening in the political arena is just horrendous against these people. Yeah. Yep. There's but some it's a laws battle on, the, on the floor in Texas that are going to affect. Um, I don't they remember them. Yeah. They will pass. And then somewhere down the road, they will have to be taken on again. But um, what I'm reading in, in news reports from other countries indicates that people are taking um, back um, permissiveness or whatever word you want to use about abortions. Mm. It's passed a law now that just because a, a couple has found out that the fetus the woman is carrying will have Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. She's still forbidden an abortion, which I think should be the couple's choice. I think it but, should be too, yeah. I just, you know, I feel like there's there's a place for sure for for laws and structures and boundaries in every society, but I really, really feel like laws and structures and boundaries should be protective for all, not protective for some. And, and for certain, I cannot impose my religious, spiritual, or moral ethics onto another person in terms of what they choose for their body. You know, I mean, this is just where now we're getting into a whole other can of worms, but I, I, there are some things that are personally and spiritually and um, kind of interpersonally decided. There are some things that are collective and those collectives need to be the most inclusive. This is again, Bell Hooks's idea of a love ethic. If we had a love ethic that was guiding all of our laws and lawmaking, we would have a protective system, but as it is, mm -hmm. I mean, you've talked about this a lot. We have a punitive system. We don't have a protective system or it's interested in protecting those who are already protected rather than those mm -hmm. who are not. Mm -hmm. And we can't deny in this country that since it's, I'm using this in quotations, founding. So the modern iteration of America since 1609 or eight, whatever it was, 
is has been run by white ideology and it became clearer and clearer and clearer as we put Native Americans on reservations, as we enslaved Africans, we, we developed, we got to articulate whiteness by separating others. Mm -hmm. So let's back up to um, Second Lieutenant Coron Nazario. Yeah. yeah. How, do, how do we untangle the threads of destiny mm. That would have prevented that from taking place. How, what are the practical steps that we take in terms of police reform or education? I mean, I really, I really encourage you to look at this because this, this black Mexican young man, young officer mm -hmm. who um, didn't get thanked for defending his country. Right. Um, he had the smarts to go to a well-lit area to stop his car. Yeah. Because he was afraid of what mm -hmm. would happen to him. And when he said that, the police officer said, you ought to be. You should be. Really? Yeah. You know, untangling that, just that very root, I think it is on many, many levels. It is educational. It's, um, it's teaching our kids history from a lens other than the good people won and the bad people lost. It's put including voices in our curriculum that have been left out. These are Native American voices. These are Black voices. These are Hispanic voices. These are immigrant voices, right? But we've told this story from a dominator construct. America won and whoever was against America lost, you know? And my kids still get a lot of teaching that is very heavy on the the success of the white male <laughs> and not on including other boys. So that's one arm, but you know, the other arm is like, I think I told you once about a Chris Rock sketch in which he said, we don't have a gun problem. We have a bullet problem. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah, I love that. You know? And, um, and that's true. And I just want to imagine what would it be like? Okay. So let's say we, we have police in our communities and I think there's a role for police in, in our communities if indeed they are there to protect all, to keep the peace, right? Why do they need guns? I know that's to some people very radical, but to me, I'm like, why do they need weapons? If indeed they are there to protect and keep the peace. Without a weapon, you can't harm someone that way. Is it still true that what they call the bobbies in England don't carry guns? They don't, yeah. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's still true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. There are other countries that police don't carry guns. Um, I would have to look up. I say that and now I'm like, oh, you better look that up. <laughs> but, um, but I just, I, you know, and then there's other, there's, all, but if you don't change that, that our fallback is killing someone. That if, if, that if whatever else doesn't work, I always have the option to kill someone or to seriously mm -hmm. injure someone. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty big fallback. Well, if all of my peaceful tactics don't work, I always have my gun. Why are we, why? Why even give that fallback? Mm -hmm. You know? That's a dominator construct. That's a dominator mentality. I have need to maintain my power in this situation. So I carry my weapon to indicate that I do have power. 
So now we've got a citizenry that feels like, oh, well, then I'm also entitled to carry my weapons because I too want power, you know? That's the model that needs to be eroded, this dominator construct of I have power, I want more power, I'm gonna match your power, I'm gonna exceed your power. I mean, it just and, keeps expanding on itself. And my concern is that it seems to be doing exactly what you're saying. It's expanding rather than decreasing. Yeah. Gun sales have gone up in this country, particularly mm -hmm. during the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. I mean, during the pandemic, gun sales yeah. have soared mm -hmm. and they, they're continuing to go up. Yeah. Um, people feel the need to create security. Mm -hmm. And um, sure, everybody wants their family to be safe and everybody wants to stay safe. That's, that's reasonable. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I really need an AK-47 to do that. I have a cartoon that I sometimes have shown in class about a guy standing at a gun counter and the salesman is, has an AK-47 and he's saying, but what if 600 intruders at once came into your house? Yeah, right. <laughs> the only rationale that you would need a weapon like That's that. That's right. I mean, it's so true. Um, and, and, you know, we're at a place where it's like impossible to imagine our society without weapons, to imagine those who are designed to keep us safe without weapons. I don't know how that got, I mean, I can probably imagine how that got created, but this idea that having a well-armed militia, which essentially is either our police or our military. And now, as I said, it's becoming our citizenry keeps us safer is backwards thinking. Yeah, it but, is. Um, okay. So I want to ask if you have something else you want to say, and I'd love to know if before we go, I can play and screen share with you a little clip. I'll edit out what we don't need for the podcast, but it's really good in terms of what we're talking about. And it's a wisdom from a little child. <laughs> I would love to see it. Let's yeah. go with it. So I'm going to screen share and you and I are going to um, watch this little clip together. Okay. Um, it's about a little girl who heard her parents arguing. Can you see what I'm seeing? I do. And she gives them a lesson. Mom, are you ready to be his friend? Yes. Try not to be that, that high up to be friends. I want everything to be low, okay? Okay. Just try your best. I, I don't want you and my dad to be replaced and, and me again. I want you and my dad to be placed and settled and be friends. I'm not trying to be mean. I just want everyone to be friends. And if I can be nice, I think all of us can be nice too. I'm not trying to be mean, but I'm trying to do my best in my heart. Nothing else than that. I want you, mom, my dad, everyone to be friends. I want everyone to be smiling. Not like being mad. I want everything to smile. Especially when I see someone, I want them to smile. Especially Nana, everyone. I want everyone to smile. And if that's for my dad and you, Mom, I think you can do it. I think you can settle your your mean your mean heights down a little to short heights. Then it's both, okay? 
I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be a bully. I'm trying to be steady on the floor, not way down. On straight, on the middle where my heart is. My heart is something. Everyone else's heart is something too. And if we live in a world where everyone's being mean, everyone's going to be a monster in their future. What if, if there's just a little bit of persons and we will eat them, then no one will ever be here. Only the monsters in our place. We need everyone to be a person. Everyone including me and my mom, everyone. I just want everything to be settled down. Nothing else. Did you hear that? <laughs> I did. <sighs> you know this, how old is this little girl? I think she can't be more than three years old. So she's gonna grow up and be a lawyer and a great mediator. Or a psychologist. <laughs> Or a psychologist, or or the next female Dalai Lama. Yeah. I mean, I know. I just want everyone to bring Thank their you. heights and bring it low. Just bring your low. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, beautiful. She's precious. Yeah. yeah. I'll include that link in our um, podcast and or the summary, and um, that way people can watch the whole thing. And I'll clip down to some of the meat of it, but just. <sighs> Oh, that's yeah. really good. Yeah. Okay, well, we're in a place of struggling yeah. with this, uh, not so much with the teaching. I think the teaching is um, is pretty clear. Yeah. We're in a place we're we're in a place of struggling with our culture. Yeah, we have some we have some debts to pay, psychological and spiritual debts that are really really big. We got to be Jacob with the angel. <laughs> be in the struggle. You love that story. I think I just love the image, you know, without struggle, we cannot make change and you got to enter in. So I do love that story <laughs> for another time. Thanks, Bill. Thank you, Holly. Love you. And thanks for teaching with me. This is it's been, would have been impossible without it's been you. And a joy. I will see you. I will see you Sunday. Okay. Adios. Bye.